We're going to be reading through Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believed. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Good morning, everyone. Great to be uh, amongst you here all again, although I was uh, pondering for a little while how I could top that joke off, Bart, <laughs> or particularly that children's talk. I don't think I'm going to come close to that. But anyway, if you have the leaflet, um, you'll know that there's an outline uh, in there of where we'll be going uh, today. And... Um, that outline will also appear as we uh, go along on the screen as well. Um, last week, obviously, you began, as Barb was saying, a series um, on Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Stephen likened the opening 14 verses um, of chapter 1 to Paul's review, if you like, of God's overarching story of what he's on about. The story that underlines all that God is doing um, in the world and his purposes for the world and for humankind. Um, it detailed, for instance, the choosing of his people before the creation of the world, uh, the giving in time and space of all, every spiritual blessing in Jesus, redemption and forgiveness through the cross, adoption of each one of us into God's family, the people of God, the gifting of the Holy Spirit as the seal and the guarantee and the certainty of the future to come. All this comes, says Paul, through the riches of God's grace, which is manifested completely and only through his son, Jesus. It really is a grand vision when you read it and something that we could read um, often just to heighten our vision with what happens here uh, to us on earth. Of course, Paul will fill out the details, some of the details anyway, in the rest uh, of Ephesians, and you'll be going through that uh, in the weeks to come. But that's not Paul's first response. Having reviewed 
this grand vision, his first response is to pray. And as with all of Paul's prayers, uh, there's much to learn uh, regarding both the place of prayer in the Christian life and some of the things that should make up, let's say, the content of our prayers. So, as you already know, probably, um, I've simply called or titled the passage uh, today, this prayer, uh, Praying in the Light of God's Story. I'll go backward first. Praying in the Light of God's Story. And Paul begins in verse 15 with these words, For this reason. For what reason? Why does Paul pray? Well, most likely because of this grand vision that he has just painted in verses 3 to 14. For Paul, to know what God is doing is automatically the reason to pray and to pray according to what God is doing. I mean, why pray for anything else? Because if God's not doing it, it ain't going to happen. For Paul, to know what God is doing is the very reason to pray. So he prays to what God's doing and what he's revealed about his, his uh, purposes. And friends, that really is the privilege of prayer that we have. One, I confess, I don't take up nearly enough is that God sovereignly works through our prayers to bring about the riches of his grace. Well then, what's the content of Paul's prayer here? Praying in the light of God's story is, first of all, praying with thanksgiving. In verses 15 and 16, he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. So the first thing Paul does is to thank God for the work of his grace, which he's just outlined in chapter 1, the work of his grace in these people's, in his readers' lives. Specifically, he says, for their faith, the faith and love of God's people. So having reviewed the vision, what Paul does is then thank God for his action in people's lives, their faith and their love for one another. And these are not not people that Paul's even met. Did you notice those words? He says, ever since I heard. Now that almost certainly means that Paul is writing to people that he hasn't met. He didn't start the church in Ephesus. For instance, other people did. He had simply heard about them. Now some of you uh, know that I'm involved in a an online teaching and training partnership with a couple of colleges in Sydney. Every semester we meet in person to review the uh, next semester's subjects and also to think a little about ways that the program might be improved. At our most recent meeting, the principal of one of the colleges in the partnership was giving a devotion on Colossians chapter 1, um, verses 3 to 5, which has, it's a similar letter to Ephesians, and has similar language Um, to these verses 15 and 16 in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Let me just read a couple of, a bit of it for you. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. Similar stuff. 
And um, the principal reflected, uh, as he thought about this, that he often prayed for his students all the time um, in this uh, partnership uh, that we have, but that he rarely gave thanks for them. And as I thought about that, that resonated with me too. Um, We pray for others' needs, uh, what we know is going on at the time, but I wonder how often we simply give thanks to God for the work of God's grace in one another's lives. For the people around you here at TNE, or in your own community group uh, that you meet with week by week, or the people you only hear about through reports from linked missionaries and things like that and other communications uh, that happen. Remember that Paul is thanking God for people he hasn't even met. He's only heard about them. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if we don't do this um, simply because we fail... Uh, to realise, if you like, what a powerful thing God does when someone turns to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith. Maybe we fail to reflect enough that without God's mercy and gracious action through his spirit, we are truly dead, as chapter 2 verse 1 will tell us, and you'll find out next week, in our transgressions and sins. So Paul, begin- so Paul begins by taking every opportunity to thank God, you see, for the riches of his grace in people's lives. Whether he knows them or has only heard about them, their faith and their love, and so should we. Well, having thanked God for his grace... Paul then asks God to help them to grow. And specifically, he says to grow in knowledge. Verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, the trouble with our, I suppose, uh, Western culture today is that when we tend to think of knowledge, we tend to think of it in terms of understanding, a sort of a, a more, if you like, intellectual sort of pursuit. And that comes out of, the, of uh, the Greek idea of knowledge, which is at the root of much of our Western uh, culture's education. But Paul's a Hebrew. And he writes with a Hebrew concept of knowledge, as does indeed the whole Old Testament which combines both understanding, knowledge is understanding, and lived-out experience. Now, the typical example, of course, that uh, has often been referred to as an illustration of this point is way back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where Adam is said to have sex with his wife Eve in the old literal terms, or King James translation, if you like, which says, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. That's the classic example, you see, of knowledge, which is not just understanding, but lived out experience, the Hebrew concept. In other words, Paul, when he talks about knowledge, is talking about relationship. 
not just ideas or thoughts. Truth. He's talking about relationship, lived out experience. Or to put it another way, Paul is talking about the personal knowledge of God himself. And how is this likely to occur? How does Paul expect it to happen? Well, I can tell you, Paul does not expect it to happen by any human effort or discovery. Forget about the Dalai Lama or any other religious figure. Forget about any sort of religious pilgrimage to Mecca or Jerusalem or any other holy site, holy site you can name. You see, personal knowledge of God comes from God himself, from his spirit, whom Paul calls here in verse 17 the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, Paul is not here referring, obviously, to the initial gift of the spirit um, that occurs when we believe. He's already stated just a few verses earlier in, uh, in chapter 1. Uh, that every believer is sealed with the presence of the Holy Spirit when they come to believe, when they come to uh, believe in Jesus. Rather, Paul here refers to what we often call the Holy Spirit's illumination. Illumination. Wisdom and revelation are two words that sum up an understanding of God and his ways in our lived-out experience an illumination of what it means to live for God in every aspect of our lives. Paul prays that God's Spirit may reveal now more of his ways in both our understanding as we read God's Word and in our daily lives as we learn how the Word applies in our lived-out experience. For we cannot possibly know God better without the Spirit's illumination. It's impossible. So we need to make it part of our prayers, brothers and sisters, that God may, through his Spirit, continue to illuminate his being to us and his ways, both in our understanding and our practice. In this pursuit, however, Paul goes on to refer to three crucial truths that he wants his readers to see and absorb so their personal knowledge of God might grow. They concern God's call, God's inheritance, and God's power. First of all then, Paul prays in both our understanding and experience for the knowledge of the hope of God's call. First part of verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The eyes of your heart. It's a wonderful expression, isn't it? The eyes of your heart. It's really an Old Testament expression, a way of referring to our true inner selves and not just what we project on the outside. And hence the enlightenment Paul desires is really, if you like, the flip side of the Spirit's wisdom and revelation. God is giving the Spirit's wisdom and revelation to us. The eyes of your heart is a way of referring to our receiving it, truly receiving, absorbing it 
into our being as the Spirit reveals. Paul prays that we know with great spiritual insight the hope God has called us to. Hope here, as it does most of the time in Paul, refers to the goal of our salvation. God has created us with a purpose and he's looking at that hope. He talks about that hope, only as hope because it's in the future, as to the end point, the goal of our salvation. God has called us through the gospel. He's adopted us into his people, as chapter 1, verse 5 tells us, has already told us. And the hope we look forward to is the summing up, Paul says, of all things in Christ for eternity. It's a certain hope. Life in new heaven and new earth in the presence of God. Now in our generation today, the trouble is we rarely think about the future. Everything is the now. Acquiring things in the now. It's all interest-free now. Until you read the fine print. The future, let alone eternity, barely gets a look in. But Paul knows that it's only as we continue to reflect and absorb in our hearts the hope or goal for which God has called us into his family that we will live as God wants us to with eternity's values in mind and not those of the world. It is this hope that will lead us, for instance, to the pursuit of holiness to a greater love for one another and a life that looks beyond the present sufferings of this world to the glory to be revealed. The more the eyes of our heart are enlightened by this hope, the less likely we are to be sucked in to the world's ways, its thinking and its values. The second truth that Paul wants his readers to truly see is the knowledge of the glory of God's inheritance. Second part of verse 18, after talking about the hope which he is called, he says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, in the saints, I think, in, in your uh, copy of your Bibles there. Now, the language here could be taken in one of two ways. The inheritance here could be the inheritance that God gives us, um, his people, um, or it could be um, God's own inheritance in his people. We might naturally think of the first, of course, but I think that would overlap with what he's already talked about, the hope of God's calling. I think he's talking about the second That is, God's inheritance. The text here says to his inheritance, to God's inheritance, not ours. God's own inheritance being his people that he has secured for Christ because of his work on the cross and in his resurrection. Friends, we are God's inheritance. That is how he regards us. And hence Paul is praying that we might know how valuable we are to God because of Christ. You see, such an estimation of, let's say, of sinful and rebellious people like we naturally are would be ludicrous 
if it was not for Christ. It would be utterly ludicrous that God should value us like that, people who naturally turn against him, if it was not for Christ. The reason God can value us like this is because he sees us in Christ. Paul's favourite phrase, in Christ. And we are the inheritance that Christ has won through his death and resurrection. You know, we often talk today about the rich and their offspring as privileged people, don't we? You know, people with silver spoons in their mouth and all that sort of thing, never had to do a day's work in their life and all that sort of stuff uh, with people. But friends, Paul wants us to understand that we, really you and I, are the most privileged people on earth. The riches and glory of being God's inheritance are nothing short of astounding. Especially when we've done absolutely nothing to deserve it at all. Why don't you go up to someone tomorrow and say to them, I am the most privileged person on the earth. The reaction would be interesting, wouldn't it? It would lead to an interesting conversation, I think, one way or another. Do you believe it? The more we take that in, friends, the more motivated we will be to respond in devotion and love for God in our daily life. Well, the third truth, an aspect of growth in personal knowledge of God that he prays for, is that we might have a knowledge of the greatness of God's power. He says in verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You see, so far Paul has prayed that his readers may know and absorb in their hearts the eternal bliss for which they're headed and the incredible privilege they have of being classed as a part of God's inheritance in Christ. But the ultimate and complete realisation of all this is still in the future, isn't it? What makes this any more than pie in the sky when you die? Or just lovely sounding religious rhetoric? Can God deliver for us? How do you know? So thirdly, Paul wants these readers to grow in their knowledge of how powerful God is. And so he dedicates an expanded space at the end of his praying more than the rest of it so far, to that very thing. And I've called it praying with confidence in God's power. Second half of verse 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over the church for everything, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now let me ask you, What example would you choose to describe God's power? Not having read those verses. 
Well, we might naturally, of course, think of creation. The creation of the universe. I mean, look what we know today compared with what Paul knew about the universe. We know so much. You know, recently, I'm sure many of you were like me watching David Attenborough's series on the TV, Planet Earth, which always staggers me um, as I see just the increase and majesty of God's creation. The incredible nature of his power in such intricacy sometimes in creating that out of nothing by his word, simply by his word. But that is not where Paul goes when he talks about God's power. Paul refers to three things about God's power that all have to do with Jesus. He refers, first of all, to God's mighty strength, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. You see, that was not just a resuscitation, was it? To die again, once more later, like, for example, poor old Lazarus, who Jesus raised, he had to go through it all again sometime later, and die again? No. Jesus' resurrection was permanent for all time. He's alive forever. Second then, Paul refers to Jesus' ascension and enthronement, if you like. The power, he says, that ascended and then has put all things under his feet in verse 22 at the beginning there. You see, Jesus now lives as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the significance for us is noted by Paul in the third aspect of God's power. For it's also the power that appointed Jesus head over all things for the church. So Paul comes back to the truly incredible truth that in the end God's power is exercised in our favour. All that God is doing, bringing all things together under Christ, is for us. For the benefit of the church, you and me. We have been made a part of Christ as a body is to its head. And all of God's power in Christ has been exercised to make it so. God's power and grace really are truly remarkable. But why do you think Paul chose the resurrection, the ascension and the enthronement of Jesus over all things he could have said rather than say God's action in creation to illustrate the incomparable power, he says, of God for us who believe? Well, for two reasons, I think. The first is because the resurrection of Jesus reveals God's ability to overcome the most significant enemy of human life. The reality of death. In the words of John Stott, death is a bitter and relentless enemy. It comes to us all one day. If the knowledge of God's call and the glory of God's inheritance are to be realised, death must be overcome. Otherwise, all this that Paul prays for is really just empty 
religious rhetoric. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus is the single most powerful truth that God can deliver what he's promised for us. That he can deliver on his plans that Jesus truly is the firstborn in what will be a long line of many brothers and sisters. But I think there's also a second reason Paul chooses to refer to Jesus' resurrection as the assurance and confidence of God's power. It is because it is the ultimate demonstration of God's power in human history. In time and space. So that we may see it. For the testimony of the apostles, in the testimony of the apostles, we have the testimony of the eyewitnesses to this truth in human history. As the Apostle John would later write in the first few verses of 1 John referring to Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and touched with our hands. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was from the Father and has appeared to us. And then, of course, we have the Apostle Paul's testimony of how the resurrected Jesus met him on the Damascus Road as he was seeking to persecute Jesus' followers. And, of course, we cannot go past the stubborn evidence of the empty tomb itself. Uh, to this day, no credible alternative explanation has appeared apart from the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus. The great demonstrable truth of human history is that Christianity testifies to a living and eternal Lord while the best any other religion can offer are only dead heroes. So, friends, that is why I think Paul can refer the resurrection, ascension and headship of Jesus overall as the ultimate demonstration of God's mighty strength. Death is defeated. The hope of God's call, the glory of God's inheritance in the saints, in his people, are secure. And God has demonstrated it all in human history with eyewitness testimony to assure us. So Paul's response then to his grand review of God's gracious plan in Jesus for those who believe is first of all to give thanks for God's grace broken into our hearts to create a faith in Jesus and a love for one another that would have been impossible without him. 
Paul then prays for the great praise for growth in the process that God has begun in every believer, a getting to know God better and his purposes better, to grasp in mind and experience the marvellous hope of God's call, to grasp how wonderful it is that we are God's inheritance, a gift by the Father to the Son, a reminder of how valuable we are to the Father because of the work of the Son. And finally, to be assured and confident that the God who has overcome the greatest enemy in human life has the power to use Paul's words a bit later in chapter 3, which you'll come to, to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. That is what Paul prayed for his readers. And surely, brothers and sisters, this prayer has been recorded for us that we too might pray for one another and those we hear about responding to the gospel in these same terms. So often I think uh, my prayers um, centre way too much on my stuff. and not enough on God's stuff. So I want to ask you today, when was the last time you prayed for a brother or sister in these terms? Or for our community here? in these terms. Let me do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for your word and particularly the Apostle Paul and the way you have inspired him uh, to leave us with such a great review of your overarching story and such an example of how to pray. Father, I want to Uh, Thank you for each one here today who has put their trust in you and for the community at T&E. I want to thank you because it's only by your grace, Lord, that each one has come to you and the creation of this community has come about. And so today, Lord, we pray that all of us, both as individuals and as a community, may indeed, through your spirit, know you better.
We pray, Lord, that we might continue to have a great grasp of the hope to which you have called us. That summing up of all things in Christ for eternity. And that we will let that determine how we should live in this life. We also pray, Lord, that we would know the glory, continue to absorb the glory you've given us as your people, as your inheritance to Christ. And we pray, Lord, that as we do pray, in whatever we pray, for ourselves, for one another, for the world, that we may do that with a great assurance and confidence and your power to bring about what you have promised. Because you have indeed given the greatest demonstration possible of your incomparably great power through the resurrection, ascension, and headship of Jesus over all. And we ask it all in his name. Amen.